This week on Dig Me Out. It's a roundtable discussion on influential bands of the 90s with special guests Sean Michael Foster and Eric Peterson. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me, not this time, my missing co-host, Jason Ziak. Jay is currently in the skies above, probably, I'm guessing, uh, the one of the Carolinas or perhaps Georgia on his connecting flight through Atlanta. Uh, he's actually coming to Columbus to visit and uh, not making this episode. The first time Jay is not making a, a live episode um, ever. So helping me out with this roundtable discussion that we're going to be doing, I've got a couple of gentlemen who are frequent commenters, always willing to give us the honest take on <laughs> when we screw up an album review or when we have done it proud. Um, returning champion joined us on, I believe, the Hum You'd Prefer an Astronaut album review, probably season two. Yep. Sean Michael Foster from Nashville, Tennessee. Sean, how are you this evening? I'm very good. Very good. Happy to be here. And we talked about when you were on last time that you are a music video director and you have some interesting stuff that you're working on right now. Can you fill us in? Yeah, we've got a documentary that we're really excited about, um, which we're starting here in Nashville. Um, basically, I, you know, I, I directed music videos for about uh, close to 16 years and then went to television. And when I went back to music video, I realized it wasn't really there anymore. So we're doing a documentary that talks a lot about the the death of music video as it as it as it, uh, as it works with MTV, which is not around anymore for us, and uh, what the future is, and um, and how it's good and bad and everything in between. So really, really excited about that. And and uh, and if you can believe it, um, just to to bring it back to. Uh, a Columbus thing. Um, MTV actually started in Columbus, Ohio, um, oddly enough. Uh, and uh, so me being originally from Columbus, Ohio, it's uh, it's close to my heart. So it's something we're really excited to get out to the people and, and, uh, and, and do work on. So Excellent. And is there going to be like a website? Do you have a, a rough title or anything? Like, is it, I want my MTV back? Right. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny you say that because, um, the first thing we all said, um, Jason Weaver, who's the executive producer with me, we both were, we just thought it was, you know, so obvious. We're like, you know, video killed the internet star or something of that thing. But I think that's already out there. Um, so we'll, we'll see what the title is going to be, but it's definitely going to be something in the, in the world of what you just said and, 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 and what I just said. Um, but yeah, it's, very exciting. And S77, for all the people that, that know about animation, is going to be uh, working with us on it. Uh, an amazing animation studio that's based in Los Angeles. And um, and they're fantastic. So Awesome. Yeah. And then joining, up from, joining us from up north in the uh, state of Michigan, the rival to Ohio in all ways, shapes, and forms. <laughs> From Ann Arbor, Michigan, Mr. Eric J. Peterson. Eric, welcome to the show. You have uh, given us many suggestions over time. I think I want to say your first suggestion was Handsome. Is that right? No, actually, it was The Screaming Trees. Oh, The Screaming Trees. Okay. I don't remember. Did you suggest Handsome or was that somebody else? No, I did uh, Screaming Trees, King's X, and then uh, the Death to Traitors. Ah, oh, King's X. That was the episode. That is the only one time we have ever been uh, stood up on an interview. We were supposed to have Doug Pinnock on, yeah. and he he bailed on us twice for the interview. So King's X are in our doghouse for that, even though we gave him a good album review when we reviewed it. Well, who knows? So maybe maybe someday, right? Maybe someday. Uh, so you had mentioned, and I want to share with the people, you're, you do a segment for a podcast out of Australia called yes. Love That Album. Can you fill us in on that? Sure. There's, uh, there's two episodes each month. There's a main episode where the host, Morris, uh, usually dissects one or two albums with a guest. And I do a 10-minute segment that uh, usually relates to the band that's being talked about or the bands that are being talked about. 
I've actually been on the show a couple of times. I think most recently we covered the band X from LA and the band X from Australia. And we talked about one of, one of each of their albums. And then, so uh, episodes I'm not on, I'll do like a 10 minute segment, just talking about an album. And I've done quite a few of the lesser known records from the nineties for any of your listeners who want to check those out and kind of got tagged as the nineties guy. The other episode that comes out each month is a 20 to 30 minute compilation edition, which I do on my own. And I, talk about compilation records and usually there's two or three of them that are sometimes they're tied together sometimes they're not but I, I just kind of give a little history and, and talk about what I like on the on the of the bands and uh, why I think people should check them out so cool and then I'm, I'm assuming that those are available through iTunes or in, in the regular yes they are okay so gentlemen we are going to tackle a subject that um, you know it comes up almost in every episode that we do which is how bands from the nineties have influenced bands going forward. Um, not just other nineties bands, but also into the two thousands. We're going to talk about the bands that were not surprised. And then the bands that were actually pretty surprised that were ended up being influential bands that have, st- have stuck around way longer than we ever thought. IE green day, um, <laughs> bands that, um, were surprised didn't become more influential based on how popular they were in the nineties. So I want to throw it, um, to you, I'm going to throw it to, to Eric first. When I threw this topic at you, were there any bands that immediately came to mind? You thought, wow, this band has been really influential on the 2000s. Yes and no. This was kind of a, a strange question to wrestle with because when I think about the uh, the progression of music and mainly rock music since about 1990, I, I can't help but but think of the influence of 70s and 80s bands and then 80s bands that reinvented themselves in the 90s mm-hmm. and, and became more influential. And uh, so th- there were some bands that came immediately to mind, and I, and I had to think about it for a while and say, were these bands really influential and did people know their name, or was it by proxy, meaning, hey, did somebody pick up on their sound and then refine it, and then that became. So I'm, I'm just going to throw, throw one out there. Um, this, this is probably, probably one of the bigger stretches is uh, Mother Love Bone. Oh, hmm. How so? Follow the tra- well, if you follow the trail of Mother Love Bone, which, for those who don't know, was the band that came immediately before Pearl Jam. Right. They, they were the first band from the Pacific Northwest. Or not the first. They were one of the very first to get a big deal record contract. I think it was them, the Screaming Trees, and then Soundgarden and Alice Change so- shortly thereafter. But they were kind of the bridge between the, the glam rock, you know, pop hair metal, and grunge. Mm-hmm. They they had a lot of those those uh, those elements in their sound, but they were definitely maybe more intelligent than some of the more um, lightweight hair metal stuff. This to me is the by proxy because you get Mother Love Bone, which uh, falls apart due to the death of their singer, and then becomes Pearl Jam with Temple of the Dog there in the middle. And that becomes hugely influential when you start talking about bands like Days of the New and Creed and Nickelback and all of those kinds, <clears throat> kinds of bands that like the soul. Yes, yeah. exactly. Sean, what that's about you? What first came to mind? Anyone? No, I honestly that was on my list. I mean, oh. I think that I think that Mother Love Bone is probably I, I think it's unknown to a lot of people, but is absolutely one of the most influential bands in terms of shaping the nineties and, and what's gone forward. Sean, you feel the same way or you do you would disagree? No, no, absolutely. I mean, Mother Love Bone was the smart that they were actually kind of the beginning of the smarter hair bands. I mean, there was there was a band from uh Georgia that came out right about the same time uh, called Mary My Hope and another band called The Front. 
there was there was that small little bit of of smart hair bands that were happening. Um, I would even fit uh, Black Crows into there. I know that's we're talking a couple years later, but there right. was that there was that there was that bit of like smart hair that was starting to happen. So I, I definitely yeah one hundred percent. I mean I think though I mean the the one that comes to my mind is so freaking obvious to me, um, and unfortunately they were like you know like every every great band like you know for every Radiohead there's a thousand other wannabe Radioheads. Um, I think Faith No More was the one that you know what they were doing in the in the late 80s with the real thing and then and then the early 90s you know i, I mean for better for worse they they started the you know the new metal thing that happened in the early right uh, thousand the two you know and and i'm not saying it's all good because frankly most of it was not very good but um i think that they they're somebody that that we all need to look at and and see that um they were massively influential and they were they were phenomenal and still are and but sadly most of the stuff that they birthed uh, not so good um mother love bone though on the other hand i think for the most part that they were do they were smart and and hopefully most of the stuff that came out of that was good but yeah no i i agree with you eric i think that that's a that's actually a smarter one i mean that was farther down on my list but now that you say it i think that's that's a, a great first one to talk about and I, I think you can draw like a connection to like a band like the Deftones being oh, sure. inf- influenced by Faith No More. One I want to throw out there, which is, you know, obvious because um, it's it's been one that I've talked a lot about, is Uncle Tupelo, um, yeah. a band that did not get a lot of appreciation at the time they existed. You know, four albums in four years and they broke up. Wilco became a massively successful and influential band. But then you look at bands like Whiskey Town, Old 97s. Um, the really the entire alternative country movement sort of evolves out of what Uncle Tupelo does. You have a magazine that starts based on one of their song titles. No, no depression. depression. Ma- yeah, exactly. Um, and that influence of of working class twang that has been completely obliterated from country music, mm-hmm. um, and it's all now bro country and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's still, you know, Ryan Adams is still going strong. There's still an undercurrent of alternative country. Isn't even you can even draw a connection to, like a Casey Musgraves and and what she's doing. Not that she was, you know, raised on Uncle Tupelo, but the Jayhawks and then you know, other people embracing, you know, pedal steel and all those the sounds that the Uncle Tupelo started playing around with in the early '90s. I think that's probably when I was thinking about bands that have. Made an influence, yeah. Radiohead's an obvious one because of Muse and Coldplay and those huge bands. But um, in terms of actually starting a whole movement, I, I would turn to Uncle Tupelo on that one. See, th- that's the Uncle Tupelo, which which I have to admit I have not checked them out as much as I should have. To me, it's one of those things that they're part of a continuum because when I think of the whole No Depression scene, mm-hmm. my first thought is Alejandro Escovedo, who No Depression magazine named as the you know the greatest artist of the the nineties, right. But to me, Alejandro Escovedo is all about the fact that he was in the Nuns, which was one of the great punk bands out of 70s San Francisco. And then sure. he was in Rank and File, which was like the great cowpunk band of the 80s. And to me, like that cowpunk Paisley Underground movement in mainly California, but there's little pockets around the country. You'll find weird little bands, you know, in the middle of nowhere. There's a band I love from upstate New York called Jet Black Berries that were part of that whole thing. And they, to me, kind of lead to the uh, the kind of punk country, uh, alt country stuff of the '90s. And I, I do, I agree with you that Uncle Tupelo was hugely influential. But to me, I think they were building a lot on uh, potentially what a lot of those bands, like once again, like Dream Syndicate or Green on Red, had done during the '80s. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I, if I can add to that, I mean, I definitely agree with you um, about the the Paisley Underground stuff, but. Let's think about bands like, I mean, obviously X, um, the Blasters, oh, yeah. you know, like the, there was a huge, and even Dwight Yoakam, if you want to get down to it, I mean, the, he was part of that underground alt country thing that was happening in, in, and you were dead on when you said it in Southern California. But I mean, in some ways, I mean, it's odd. It kind of goes back to another obvious influence. I mean, the replacements were, were influenced by country 
you know, when it was not cool to be influenced by country in like 19, what, 81, you know, when, when they started going, I mean, they, Almost they, definitely. you know, they, they were taking country and punk and putting it together. So, I mean, I think, I think we're all on the same page here, but I definitely see your point about Uncle Tupelo. Well, one, they were coming from the pseudo South, you know, San, or, um, St. Louis, um, but they were, you know, they were kind of bringing it to the college, college world, kind of like the replacements. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 I like, I like what you were saying, Eric, about, uh, about the, the, the Paisley underground stuff, because I definitely see that connection. Um, even though the Paisley underground stuff obviously had a lot more psychedelia going on. Oh, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I can, I can definitely see the, the connection there for sure. You know, I think the thing that ties uncle Tupelo to sort of the indie underground circuit is their appreciation of band like dinosaur jr. Whereas, you know, some of those other bands, you know, they would be comfortable on a band on a bill with that band in terms of their guitar playing and in terms of their songwriting and stuff. Um, Whereas maybe I don't don't know if Dwight Yoakam would be on the same bill as 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 Dinosaur Jr. That might be a little bit odd. Um, Although, I mean, uh, no, it's funny you say that. I agree. But I mean, he was he was opening up for X and the replacements and all these people in uh, the anti bar in in Los Angeles in the 80s, which I know kind of blows your mind now. But I mean, there were bands like Lone Justice and and uh, fuck, I can't think of any others. But I mean, green on green on red, screaming sirens. Exactly. um, Right. All of those bands that were on the uh, Hell Comes to Your House 2 compilation, half the bands that were on the Enigma Variations compilation. Exactly. Yep. So let's t- let's change the subject a little bit. Let's talk about the bands that we are surprised gr- grew up and became influential bands. Maybe these were we thought they were just going to be like one hit wonders or one album wonders and sort of fade away, but they are they are, they not only exist but they have offspring. Not that I want to mention the offspring in this discussion, <laughs> uh, but oh, trust me, it's it's on my list <laughs> of, of the horrible stuff. Yes, yes. Um, so I think the obvious one, which I sort of I mentioned in the lead up, is I don't think anybody expected Green Day to make it this far based on oh. Dookie. Mm-hmm. Um, they seemed like a band that was going to have a, a a good five single record and then disappear after that maybe have a couple more singles and that was about it now they're in the rock and roll hall of fame they've produced a broadway musical um they've been knighted they're one of the great american rock punk bands of all time now according to rolling stone and um they have tons of offspring they the mall punk that they and probably um weezer somewhat are responsible for in, in terms of bands like newfound glory and um Blink 182. Uh, Blink 182. Yeah. You know, those sorts of bands. What bands were, are you guys shocked that have become hugely influential? Sean, I'm going to start with you this time. Uh, well, I mean, the, the first obvious one to me is just because I used to see them growing up in Columbus and, and Ohio period all the time, which I still kind of blows my mind that they got so big um, and, and, and now are one of the biggest bands in the world. I'm going to say, well, there's two, but Nine Inch Nails, I still, I don't, I don't know. Like, I never thought that, that, that was a band that was ready for mainstream access, especially with the, the, the record after Pretty Hate Machine was the most non-commercial record. I mean, the, what was it called? The uh, Downward Spiral. Downward Spiral, right. Um, I mean, it's not a commercial record. Surprised that the whole Nine Inch Nails tool system of a down thing, like they are major, major players in 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 the in the music of the, the record industries, and I can't believe that they sell as much records as they do. But um, you know they're bigger than they're 
you know, they compete with Aerosmith. I mean, they compete with, with any major band we can think of. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that's surprising to me. Do I love them all? I don't know. But um, for being, I mean, so edgy and so against the grain, um, those a, ones surprise me. I have a theory about that that actually ties into my whole Nickelback theory. And that's <laughs> that. So you're familiar, familiar with the whole of why does everybody hate Nickelback thing? Right. Of course. Yeah. So you're familiar with the Telecom Act of 1996, right? Which basically deregulated radio and yep. caused Clear Channel to own a third of the stations in America. Of course. So, what, all these bands you're mentioning, Nickelback, you know, System of a Down, all of those, they were the last wave of underground music to really rock music, at least, to really become above ground and embraced by radio and MTV. Right. And because of the Telecom Act, and because MTV stopped showing music video. And because of uh, consolidation of music magazines or them becoming uh, you know, less, having less contact with the underground, that was the last underground scene that most people heard. And the new scene that should have followed them largely got locked out of the radio world and the video world and the magazine world. So yeah. we're stuck with these bands that people know from 1994, 1995, 96, and into 97 because that that renewing hasn't happened yet because of yeah. the industry won't let it does that make sense oh that yeah makes it's, total sense. you need heritage acts to to go exactly. out and tour and well you're you know. always going to have a few that become the classic of their era and they're going to rise to the top and they're going to play arenas and then you're going to have some that play casinos or county fairs or whatever which hey great if you great work if you can get it but right. when you have the the cycle of exciting underground generational music come into the mainstream and be embraced by the young people of that time. And then it kind of falls away. And there's like this, this poppy manufactured thing that comes in. And then it, there's this reinvigoration as the next generation comes of age. But with what happened in 96, 97, that largely was interrupted and the industry has kept it out. So we don't get those new sounds that should follow in the mainstream. So people are still being influenced by Nine Inch Nails or System of the Down because that's what they're hearing. Uh, a band that I want to throw out there that I, I, I'm curious how that fits into your theory is uh, the Flaming Lips because okay. the Flaming Lips weren't really a widely accepted band. I mean, they had a trajectory of a one-hit wonder, essentially, with She Don't Use Jelly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they somehow managed to make the Soft Bulletin in 99 which completely reinvigorated their career. And you see bands like MGMT, Band of Horses are show in, mm-hmm. Flaming Lips influence, even Arcade Fire in terms of that big orchestral sound that the Lips used on that record and, and going forward on records after that. How do they work with that? So you're right. There is there is that, that kind of effect with the Flaming Lips. But there's always one or two bands that are have like one hit or become popular with the underground and are able to spread out and influence musicians. So if you think of like the Grateful Dead or Captain Beefheart or Sonic Youth or, you know, any of those kinds of outsider bands that manage to connect with people or connect with musicians, I should say, that they they have this whole career that's outside of the, the mainstream and that doesn't require radio airplay. That doesn't require MTV. You know, and this, although, this happens, although I'm go, sorry, ahead. go ahead, I would say this happens a lot. If you think about the, the heavy metal world that never got a lot of media attention, but created its own. I mean, that's that's the whole story of a band like Hawkwind or a band like um, even Black Sabbath, who, who, you know, Iron Maiden, who never got major radio play. Right. Right. No, so no. What well, yeah, I, I just want to add to this because, I mean, you're exactly right. And I only know kind of a bit about the lips because, um, you know, a lot of friends of mine worked with them and, and, and at Warner Brothers, and they are one of the few bands I've ever heard of in the history of my life that working in the, in the industry that you don't fuck with the Flaming Lips at Warner Brothers. They were signed there. They never made a cent forever, but because they were acknowledged by the label, and this is something that, I, that you've got to give some, you know, you got to tip your hat to Warner Brothers for realizing how great they were that they weren't going to let them go. They weren't going to let anybody screw with them. They were going to put them on cool tours. And one, that's good for Warner Brothers because that means, just like you said, 
that means great musicians come to Warner Brothers. But that Warner, but Flaming Lips wouldn't have had as much influence, I don't think, if they didn't have the support of a major label, uh, Warner Brothers, which they gave them more support than probably most of the bands that were even on Warner Brothers. Um, so they're they're in a, they're a very interesting uh, band to to even get into because they not only do they deserve every bit of the uh, of the respect and they are awesome. Um, you know, the Soft Bulletin literally was a, was a life changing record for many people, but a lot of it was due to the fact that they had such a great team behind them and they really cared for them. And I, I can't think of another band other than maybe Wilco or. You know, there, there's not very many bands that are loved by a, a major label like that. Um, and I think it was all done by design, um, for better, for worse, because they were so damn good. And um, they would bring in great artists. Uh, so they were they were given kind of carte blanche, where they were like, you know, go make Soft Bulletin. Go make, uh, what's the record they, they made that was uh, uh, Zarika before, yeah, with, with, where they did the... the the thing in Austin, Texas, where they had the the, the, the outdoor movie theater and they, they you know played it into into just cars for their their promo thing. I mean, there's not a minor or a, a indie label in the world that ever could have paid for that. You know, um, I'm not pro major label, but they're an inter- they're an interesting topic to come up with when we're talking about you know uh, a band that's influential, especially um, when it comes to you know. Indie, indie labels to 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 major labels. So. Do they make their own records? Do they? Do, I know they live in Oklahoma, right? They do they record out of their own studio there? I don't believe so. I mean, I, they could. I know they make their own videos. I mean, shit. Warner Brothers paid for uh, for Wayne to make his own feature film, uh, right. Christmas on Christmas. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, they've been given. So, it's. I mean, they're almost. We could almost have a show just about talking about Flaming Lips. Period. I mean. They they're literally like they they don't fit any John they don't fit any anything that any band we could talk about fits you know um, and I think a lot of it there was a guy David Katz Nelson who signed them and uh, I don't believe he's there anymore but he also signed the Boredoms to Warner Brothers which is like unbelievable I mean like this guy was able to sign bands that had no reason to be on a major label but. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. I'm, I, I could go, I could literally go off for like a half an hour on just playing for too long. <laughs> so yeah, I'll stop now. <laughs> and they're they're one of the few bands in in terms of what you were mentioning earlier with like Hawkwind and and uh, mm-hmm. Sonic Youth that completely crossed over to the mainstream. I mean, Wayne Coyne was in an Apple commercial for the for the iPod iPad or an iPad um the original um iPod I believe. So. You know their name recognition is probably even higher than Sonic Youth amongst the mainstream, and probably most people don't know a song of theirs other than maybe one or two. Do you realize it probably is is may, might be bigger than She Don't Use Jelly? Although I hear She Don't Use Jelly on Lithium on Sirius XM like every other day. Well, it's did, a cool did, novelty did, tune, so it's it's easy to to play and be accessible. And it gives you the cachet of, hey, we're playing this this weird band, right? Right. Well, it's it's also I don't I mean it is the state song of Oklahoma. It beat out it beat out Wanda Jackson for the state song of <laughs> that's not okay. Oklahoma. I know it's bizarre. It's it makes no sense. Like how does that happen? But yeah, no, it did. And it's yeah. Do you realize is the state song of Oklahoma? Yeah. That sorry, I'll just put that out there. We can think about that later. There will be a Flaming Lips episode at some point. That's going to happen. There really should be. I mean, yeah. we, we we can't avoid that. Uh, let's talk about bands that we expected to be more influential um, for whatever reason, but aren't. Uh, I'll give you an example. There was a band in, I think it was 1994, that put out an album, a Seattle band, one of the big Seattle bands, huge record like five top 40 singles mtv constant rotation i'm talking about soundgarden mm-hmm. i don't hear a lot of soundgarden in any modern bands i hear a lot of Alice in chains in like godsmack and you know those sorts of bands i hear the pearl jam like we've talked about you hear nirvana they started with like silver chair and it's, it continues there are bands constantly waves you know all sorts of bands that sound like nirvana 
Um, but Soundgarden was really, I mean, they were, in terms of album sales, one of the most successful bands of the 90s, between that and Down on the Upside. And yet, I don't hear a lot of bands, or really any bands, that are doing that sort of metal-influenced punk that they were doing, but with a little bit of a twist on some of the songs, like you know, Black Hole Sun or um, Pretty Noose or something like that. So what what do you guys think about bands that were huge or you thought were going to be successful or not successful, you thought were going to be influential but didn't end up being influential at all? Eric, I'll start with you. So I thought of this as the, the what bands do I, am I not seeing clones of all over the place question. And mm-hmm. the, uh, the two that came, came to mind uh, are Turbo Negro from Norway and Typo mm-hmm. Negative. Those are the two that I'm like, this is a no-brainer. You know, Turbo, Turbo Negro to me is the misfits of the 90s. Basically, they have that cult following. They have all the, that image and iconography. And they have that kind of dark glam rock sound that's, that's going to scare some people. That's not like gross. Well, it is a little gross, but it's not Marilyn Manson. So it's a little more accessible. It's a little more David Bowie. And they have this rabid following around the world. And there's been one clone that I can name. There's a band called Dead Sheriff from Norway that, that sounded just like them, but I'm not hearing them or seeing their look in anybody else. Same thing goes for typo negative. It's goth metal. How hard is this? You take you take some Bauhaus, you take some Black Sabbath, and you mix it together, and you get a really deep vocalist, and you get the bass out front. You know that was the. I mean, there was a band called Life of Agony that was related to typo negative. Had some yeah. their producer and one of their former members, and they had a similar sound. But I, I'm just shocked that I'm not seeing a billion clones of typo. That's a good point. I. It, in terms of the the goth thing, I think there was definitely a shift away from in the early two thousands, like any sort of artistic license with the image. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when the Strokes come in, and that like stripped down garage sound comes into play. Right. And I'm not sure where My Chemical Romance comes in, but they were kind of goth at the beginning, but their music wasn't necessarily, you know goth in that way that you would think of with typo negative it was really more i guess marilyn manson yeah marilyn manson well i mean so. i can think i mean th- there was that one guy um out of finland him yeah he, oh, he was right that's that was kind of doing the same thing and and for a hot minute you know he was getting a lot of interest um him or, 69 eyes out of uh i think yeah out of, out of finland it's similar but you know uh those are like real regional scenes and uh yeah, they get they get some play in Europe, but not not in the states, and maybe not in England, which I guess is where it really kind of counts. Yeah, yeah. Sean, what about you? Uh, band that you're surprised wasn't more influential. I mean, I got two right off the top that like still blow me away. I mean, Brainiac was a band that they're in, uh, a very indie band from uh, from uh, Dayton. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with them, but uh huh, know the name. Yeah, they, they broke off and made Skeleton. Well, some of the guys went to Skeleton Key, and then um, uh, Enon was the, the the band that the other guys went. Uh, Timmy Taylor, the lead singer, uh, unfortunately passed away right before they were supposed to sign like a massive deal with uh, with Interscope. Um, but Brainiac is like, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's kind of hard to talk about them if if it's something that's not well known. But I mean, they literally could have kind of changed the uh, the landscape of of indie rock, I, in my opinion. Um, they had a record called Bonsai Superstar that, I mean, it was it was ready to go. Uh, the other one 
which uh, you guys covered uh, back in the in the day. Thank you very much, by the way, because I, I loved your, your your post of it. But was Bark Market? Um, uh, Bark Market now is you know David Sardi, who's probably one of the biggest producers in the freaking world. Does everyone from Oasis to movies to everything? But um, there was really, I mean, he was he was of that world of uh, of Nine Inch Nails or Failure or um, I'm sorry, not failure uh filter um that just in incredibly aggressive industrial meets noise rock meets shit i i mean the, i think two of the greatest bands that i can't believe didn't get their chance um and so yeah i don't know if you guys know about them but that, do you hear some brainiac in say early at the drive-in and even some of the mars volta stuff I do, I, but you know it's funny you say that. Um, I don't think they know. I, I, I for a brief period I was talking to those guys back in the day, and I don't think they know who the fuck the, they are. So hmm. I don't think they. I don't think they did it by by influence. I just think they maybe were coming from a similar similar headspace. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, as for Bark Market, I don't know, man. I mean, it, it, you guys did an amazing cast with uh you do it john chan or i can't remember who you did it with but um you guys broke it down really well i think neil was actually on that one that's right that's right it was neil yeah um yeah i mean you know you you, you hear that influence all over with the uh, uh with, with a band like uh, crash kings i don't know if you've heard of those guys that, that had a brief period of being big and um and that whole sound was you know gonna happen a band called far that was um you know doing very similar stuff but yeah yeah i i yeah th th those ones surprised me let's talk about i'm looking at my list of topics here for this for this episode can, um, I, can i can i quickly throw out one more for the one oh yeah go ahead by? so i used to the band 16 horsepower oh of course i fucking love seriously i can't believe you just I'm sorry, I'm interrupting because I fucking <laughs> adore 16 horsepower. I saw them like numerous times in LA and uh, big fan. Yeah, go on. So, yes. so like dark, not quite like, kind of southern gothic, but not like yeah. Bauhaus gothic. Right. Um, Americana with with once again with a singer with this this great deep voice, and uh, I, I'm so, once again surprised that, that not only aren't there clones, but with a lot of these challenging bands that, that we talk about. Uh, that somebody doesn't take the kind of an edge of that challenge and, and like make it poppy or more accessible. I'm surprised that with somebody hasn't done that with with the 16 horsepower. At least I haven't heard anything like. That. Eric, I got I got to be. I I can't I can't agree with you more. I I absolutely adore that band. I don't know how anyone could. I mean, the the lead singer, his his father was a. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about the band, but he was like a brimstone a and like he was like. You know, sinners need to mm -hmm. die. We will kill them with our hands. Like, I mean, it's really, really heavy shit. Um, so I, don't, I, I mean, I, whatever, whatever those guys are doing. He's got a new band called Woven Hand. It's, in my opinion, not as good, but um, I, he's not faking it. Like, he's he's like Nick Cave. He's like he lives that dark. Well, and that's world. that's the other thing is that he's part of that continuum that's like Tom Waits and Warren yeah. Zevon and Stanton Ridgeway and then Nick Cave totally. and then. You know, you get a couple. I, I'm blanking on who else you would put in that, but that continuum of influence. Oh yeah, dude, that is a great reference. I'm I'm jealous that you got to bring that one. That yeah, that's awesome. I, I support you a billion percent. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. I want to talk about the. You know, there were bands that were influential in the '90s, and then they just sort of dried up. Um, and then there have been bands that have been influential. It seems, and I, I'll give you an example, like, I think Jeff Buckley was, like, mm -hmm. somebody who was immediately influential in bands like Ours and um, totally. uh, it, it changed Radiohead. I mean, but then that sort of, it, I feel like by the 2000s, that went away. You stopped getting, like, the guy singing in falsetto. Even, like, Chris Martin stopped singing like that. Like, he, he's doing more Bono than he is uh, Jeff Buckley. And then you have the bands that 
really became influential years and years later. I mentioned like the Flaming Lips. I don't think you saw a lot of Flaming Lips imitators. Maybe Tripping mm-hmm. Daisy w- would be the one. And it was really like up until the mid to- the mid two thousands that they became more successful or more influential. Um, can you guys think of any other bands that at the time really weren't influencing anybody? It took like a decade for people to catch up and sort of figure out what that band was doing. And actually, I think a band like Failure, who I just got to see this past week um, here in Columbus, is probably a good example of that in that a lot of bands at the time, and I, I, you know, they were friends with bands like Tool, who have a slightly different sound, but it was really years later where like bands like Cave In and Paramore were looking at them and saying, wow, this is an amazing band and started you know, either sounding like them or getting like Ken Andrews to produce their records. Can you guys think of other bands where it took basically the other bands 10 or so years to catch up and sort of start imitating or, or, or cloning their sound? See, that That's a weird one because uh, once again, it, it, it's kind of all a continuum, but you know, that's tough. Oh, I threw out a hardball. Yeah, off. you did. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, that's a tough one. Well, I, th- I think a band that uh, you know that you've talked about, and I know that people love, is Hum, which is a band that kind of, kind of had this one hit and then kind of faded away, and right. then in the last you know five, six, eight years, I start hearing a lot more, you know, music people, meaning people that are really into music, not casual listeners, start referencing them, start talking about them, and uh, I think that's one. Well, no, I, I agree with you a billion percent, but I can't think. Of, of of a copycat other than Deftones or, I mean, I really, honestly, like I'm a huge Hum fan. I'm actually mm-hmm. going to see them in, in uh, uh, you know, uh, next month. Um, you bastard. I, I know, exactly. I know, I'm so excited. But but who who has ripped them off well? I mean, I really can't think of one other band that's really nailed the, the sound, the bigness, the, the smartness. Um, I can't think of anybody other than Deftones. I mean, is there somebody that I'm missing that that, that has that that humness? No, I don't. I don't think anybody's ever really captured that what they do exactly. And I think that's probably a good thing because it's kept yeah their sound so fresh and unique. In the same way that I think like there are a lot of bands influenced by Refused and The Shape of Punk to come, but nobody has ever done anything close to what that record is i mean it's such a unique record in the way that it's presented and the way that the songs are written and and not even really written but like pieced together i don't know how you could i don't know how you could follow that record it i I, in fact from what i've heard i don't even think they're following it very well Uh, no it it sounds like shit i mean like i hate everything i've heard from this new record coming up so that's my two cents but (laughs) yeah i mean that that that's i mean that's a good that's a great i mean that's a great Somebody I mean, refused. Shape of Punk Come is is a literal masterpiece, and I who's going to do that better? I don't know. Nobody. I, one of the bands that I thought of when I mentioned about this not having inf- immediate influence was um, Smashing Pumpkins. I don't remember a lot of bands doing their weird combination of the what was essentially early emo vocals, mm-hmm. and then this blazing guitar work that Billy Corgan was doing, although he skipped it for an album on a door. I feel like that album was probably more influential than anything in terms of people being able to like write with keyboard loops and stuff like that. But then you saw what like, I think my chemical romance has a little bit of a smashing pumpkins in them. I think silver sun pickups has a huge influence. Um, And it's only been really in the mid two thousands with that sort of band and, and some other bands embracing, I don't want to say grunge, but, you know, heavier bands from the 90s that you've seen people sort of like, because Billy Corgan was a pretty, well, I think he probably still is, but sort of disliked character for a long time. I think he likes to play the villain. That's why he's into pro wrestling, because he likes that idea of (laughs) heroes and villains. So I think he's pretty masterful in terms of handling press and, and getting press when he needs to by just saying ridiculous shit. He's sort of the American Noel Gallagher in that way. Whereas he's very good at manipulating the press and coming off as an asshole when he needs to, to generate although some interest. Although I don't think it works very well. Now with this new William uh, Corrigan thing, I mean, it's like, I don't know anybody who takes that shit serious. That just seems to be like a goof. I, I don't get 
<laughs> so I, I did think of a band. You know okay. the band from Seattle called Earth? Oh, yeah. They're like all instrumental, like real heavy. So I think yep. that the bands like what? Explosions in the Sky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a uh, Sun Kill Sun something, something, whatever. That that whole scene, I think, is heavily influenced by a band like Earth. Yeah, well, Earth, um, Don Caballero, uh, uh, that was on Touch and Go Records, I think mm-hmm. they may have actually been even before Earth. That instrumental, big, huge explosion in the sky. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a great reference. Um, a band from Japan called Mono did the same mm-hmm. kind of thing. Super what? huge, huge rock. Yeah, I think they were just, you know, the whole getting rid of the vocals and doing the instrumental thing. And, and by the way, I think the reason that we haven't seen a Soundgarden clone is because we don't have anybody with a voice. Like- Ladies and gentlemen, we are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. We will return to our regularly scheduled program momentarily. Please stay tuned. We expect to resume normal broadcasting shortly. Be sure to stay tuned for Jeopardy! They weren't a mainstream band mm-hmm. in the 90s, but yet I, I, probably more Queens of the Stone Age is responsible for it than Caius in terms of their overall legacy. But stoner rock became, and, and that's just stoner rock, but I think metal became an indie genre with Mastodon and Comets on Fire and the Sword, Sword and yeah. all these bands in the 2000s where um metal was pretty much the domain of sort of you know priest and maiden and metallica and anthrax it wasn't something that if you were into if you were indie rock kid you weren't going to be listening to metal there was the very fierce sort of differentiation in the 80s between guys who were into punk and indie underground music and guys who were into metal like those are those are two different groups of people whereas now you know you might be listening to uh something from mastodon and then also listening to something that's have more heavily influenced by Black Flag than anything. So, so another band that kind of fits in there is Monster Magnet. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a weird yeah. band. That is a very weird band. We did an album review of of uh, Dopes to Infinity, which and, is my favorite of their albums. I yeah, think it's a totally. Great album. It is a great album, and it's it's hard to believe that they weren't huge. They had basically one single, yep. Uh, but they they knew how to write songs. I mean, if anything, the one knock against Caius was they just weren't a radio singles band. They wrote great riffs. Mm-hmm. They had a great vocalist who did exactly what he's supposed to do. But they just didn't have like the ra- the one radio single that they needed. Whereas, man. Monster Magnet could just knock out when they felt like it and they didn't want to jam on a weird, you know, Eastern riff for 12 minutes. They could <laughs> totally write the radio single. So that, that just brought another one to mind. Did you know the band Course of Empire? I don't no, know. Them. I'm not They were, they were out of Texas. They were on Zoo Records. They put out, I think, three albums. The last one was on TVT. So they were doing this kind of heavy, droney, uh, you know, like Stooges in the... Uh, the we will fall mode thing with an industrial underpinning. Cool. They had two drummers and uh, you know, they didn't, they had like a video on MTV for headbangers ball or, you know, alternative nation or whatever. And uh, they're one that I'm surprised did not become more influential because they, they were mixing that industrial with that kind of tribal thing. And they had a pretty big sound. And actually I'm, I'm really, really like their first album, which is one of the creepiest things you'll ever hear. And, uh, but they also fall into that kind of stoner, you know, place between, um, place between metal and punk. You know, they, they covered Fears, a Let's Have a War, but they also covered Blue Moon and Elton John. So, yeah. hmm. you know, or uh, not Elton John. Uh, what am I thinking of? It's uh, Billy Joel. No, that band that did uh, <laughs> Walk Away Renee. Uh, I'm going to kick myself because uh, anyway. 
the band that the guy from Spinal Tap was in at one point in time. Nigel Tufnell? No, uh, Michael Hubbins. Ma- Michael Michael McKeon? Yeah, he was in. Uh, yeah, they were a folk band, weren't they? They were. They were like a folk pop harpsichord. Yeah. Sorry, my my. I should know this one. And That's they, all right. You're going on such a far tangent there. It's it's okay, all right. At any rate, <laughs> at any rate, uh, they, but they covered uh, one. You know that that kind of folk uh, baroque pop band. So that that was kind of their range, and you know I'm surprised that that more underground kind of weird trippy bands didn't pick up on what they were doing. Well, I'm definitely gonna check it out. What, what were they called again? I'm it's called Course of Empire. Course of Empire. Yeah. All right. Cool. I want to throw out a band that is not specifically a '90s band, but their I think their '90s input or excuse me, their '90s output is influential, and that's Metallica. If you start with the Black album, which is what '91 that album was released, and then go to the Load and then Reload, um, I think that they basically spawned a new generation of what I'll call I don't know butt rock. Yeah, that is is different from '80s butt rock, being you know the hair metal bands, um, but they provided a cover for some of the '80s metal bands to evolve. I'm thinking of like Skid Row on Subhuman Race. They were right. able to become a metal band that could be taken seriously, and they you know they did it by slowing the tempos, having James Hetfield not scream anymore him do you know his uh oh okay uh <laughs> i've heard of that band eric i didn't want to interrupt you so no that's all right well they'll heal the beep oh okay so i'll have to that that's why i'm talking about it left bank is the band yes. um but i think but you know metallica's 80s output is you know basically a diff, it's almost a different band when you think of like ride or uh, kill them all through injustice for all um and that was obviously hugely influential as being one of the thrash bands. But then there are eight, their 90s output is basically it's a different era. And you get a lot of that like, I mean, for God's sake, that's like that changed the, the direction of Kid Rock in some ways. Yeah. Is that so can you think of any other bands? This is I, this isn't one that I printed, presented to you guys before the show. Any who, other who bands? Told, what, who who told? who totally left their entire audience and somehow, which is amazing that they were able to do it, find, I mean, they pissed off their entire, you know, 15 year audience. And then they came up with an entire new audience that was 15 million times bigger. Now, it, <clears throat> I don't mean to complete your sentence, but complete your sentence, but it's, it really is unbelievable that I, I hate the second, the second coming of Metallica, but you've got to admit it's kind of unbelievable. I don't, I, if you guys can think of another band, I'd love to talk about it because I have no idea a band that's ever been able to do what they've done. I think it's unprecedented. The only comparison that I could maybe make is Dr. Dre, <laughs> which right. is a weird one. But him leaving NWA, which was a hugely influential band, and then making The Chronic, which was a hugely popular but very mainstream record. But, but, that, but that it changed I've got a band for music. you that did that. Sorry, I didn't mean that. The Goo Goo Dolls. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Look at that early 90s Goo Goo Dolls. They put out two great power pop albums. Yeah, yeah. And then they went total middle of the road, secretary rock. Totally. Easy (laughs) listening. But I, I will stand by Superstar Car Wash and Boy Named Goo. Those are both solid power pop records. I mean, that, that's back when they were still in Minneapolis, I think, working with the replacements. And I think they were on Twin Tone at that time. So, yeah, they're making like great, like kind of, you know, uh, very respectable uh, indie rock. And then they became 
like you said, Secretary Rock. That's a that's probably the best thing I can think of. Yeah, that's so you're you're saying well that Dizzy Up the Girl is the Secretary Rock album, then? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it is. That I mean, I'll be honest. That's the I, that's the one I don't own anymore, or, or that's where I stopped following them. Got you know, me too. <laughs> basically, it was Slide. I mean, after Slide, it was like, oh, this is this is going in a direction that you know, yeah. if you listen to their early stuff, it's kind of it's hard to be accessible and it's kind of half formed. But like I said, you get to Superstar Car Wash, you get to Boy Named Goo, solid power pop. They're doing yeah. covers of interesting bands. I even throw Hold Me Up in there as a as a quality album. Is that that's one of the earlier ones, isn't it? That's the one that precedes Superstar Car Wash. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's some interesting stuff on those earlier records, but it, they don't necessarily hold together as right. as well as, as those those two early '90s ones did. It's the last record that features the uh, incredible Lance Diamond yeah. on guest vocals. Yep. We're going to hit the hour mark here shortly, okay. so uh, that's where I like to wrap these up. I want to I want to finish with a positive and okay. say there are bands that could have been huge, like Oasis huge, and then given us a whole bunch of shitty bands to follow, but they didn't. They actually made things better. Can you give me an example of where you're happy that this band was influential, that they actually provided a, I don't want to say a a stepping stone, but they provided a blueprint for bands to make a lot of interesting records. I'll give you an example. I think Sunny Day Real Estate, there are a lot of bands that looked at Sunny Day Real Estate and they could have been awful, but I think when you look at bands like, I don't know, let's say Mineral or um, uh, now I'm drawing a blank, but I think there are a lot of really good emo guitar bands that came out of the Sunny Day the Real jo- Estate sound. Jealous Sound? The Jealous no. Sound, Jimmy, yeah. even like Jimmy Eat World, like Clarity, yeah. that, that record. Um, um, I feel like there's a lot of really interesting music that came out of Sunny Day Real Estate. And yeah, they produced some lower quality stuff, but I don't feel like anything got so huge and annoying that it, it you know made me regret their influence do you guys do you guys think of any bands like that yeah i'm gonna go with uh you know the band soundtrack of our lives yeah I, yeah so soundtrack of our lives came out of a band called union carbide productions and very much they were they were one of the main bands that influenced the whole scandinavian uh high energy rock and roll scene of the late 90s so that's where you get um, stuff like Backyard Babies, the Helicopters, the Lucifer. But because they were bringing in several different influences, they, they, they brought a lot of those bands to the idea that, hey, if I want to make hard rock, I don't just have to ape whatever's popular. That if I can bring in some pop, I can bring in some psychedelic stuff. And the way that they, they mix that all together, and they, they were kind of the, let's say, the big brothers of that scene in a lot of ways. And from there, you get, you know, you get the Hives and you get, to a certain degree, Sahara Hot Nights and a lot of other bands like that. And I think that they very much, to me at least, were, were a big part of what generated that scene. At the same time, they were still part of that scene. Cool. I have to check them out. I've not listened to Union Carbide, Union Carbide Productions, it was called? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, I'll have to check that out. And I think, uh, you know, at the same time, helicopters also with what they did, co- kind of being a focal point of the scene there and being open to playing with bands that had variations on their sound of what gets referred to as garage punk these days. I think that they were they, they were a band that made things better. I, oh, yeah. I, you know, it's, it, it's, it's funny when we talk about helicopters. I think they're a band that unfortunately got they got cut really short. Um, I think there was a period where so many bands wanted to reference them and wanted to support mm-hmm. them. And uh, I don't really exactly know what happened, but I remember like you know bands like Nashville Pussy and a band from Columbus called Gaunt, um, uh, New Bomb Turks, another band from Columbus. But there was a lot of bands that were like rallying around what 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 the helicopters were doing, and and even the Backyard Babies as well. But but something happened, and I really I can't put my finger on like the where industry. It went wrong. The industry didn't want to let the, the to me they are the next wave of the underground. Yeah. that I was talking about earlier that was shut out by yeah. the industry pushing the Spice Girls and the Backstreet Boys and not letting somebody like Glucifer or the Helicopters or 
you know, anybody that was on those fistful of rock and roll comps in the year 2000, you know, Electric yeah. Frankenstein, the Bell Rays, not letting those bands have Bell access. Yes. Yeah, right. You know, yes. that's that kept that scene from from having what to me should have been the natural step, which would have been a lot of those bands get signed. They all get thrown on radio. What sticks sticks and what doesn't doesn't. So I, I think that to, to me, the, the helicopters are maybe the the tragedy of that of that era, because you know, especially as you go on in their catalog, some of that stuff is very accessible and it actually was big in Europe and Japan and Australia, mm -hmm. but yeah. never crossed over to the UK and therefore America was allowed to kind of shut it out. I also think they came at a really bad time where, you know, like you said, radio had been consolidated and I think of the key albums for them are like Grande Rock onward mm -hmm. to probably rock and roll is dead. And, you have that weird early 2000s where the internet really can't support streaming music the way it does now yeah. and you don't you can't listen to quality music whatever you're getting off of you know Napster at the time is crappy sounding um, the BitTorrent sites are unreliable whereas now i think if the helicopters were emerging now and Glucifer were emerging now there would be this You'd have social media behind them. You would have yep. this whole infrastructure mm -hmm. that could be built around them. They just, I think it's as much as like the time period where they just got kind of got caught in this weird, you know, nebulous time where there wasn't really anything to fill the void to promote them other than playing shows. Because yeah. we had this, I remember having this discussion. We went to see them. It was the Turks, them, Zen Gorilla, and... Um, Super Suckers? Yeah. Uh, and where was that show that you saw? It was at the El Rosa Villa here in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. I nice. saw that show in Detroit. <laughs> and we had this, I had talked to Jay at, at the time about it. How about if, if we were lived in an alternate universe, the helicopters would have a number one single. Oh yeah. Like Grande Rock was had just out. It was, should have been huge, but instead, you know, we, that wasn't what was getting pushed. Even though they were on Sub Pop, Sub Pop didn't have that cachet anymore. Well, Sub Pop kind of, I little inside information here is Sub Pop dropped the ball with all of those bands yeah. and they were not happy about it. The other part was that all of those, those at least in Northern Europe, all those bands were signed to major labels and the helicopters brought by the grace of God, which is their, their to me, which is their big selling album in Sweden. It sold mm -hmm. like it was gold record there um, all over the radio, all over MTV Nordic and when they brought it to New York to give it to the uh, Polygram in, in New York, they didn't. They just could have cared less, and it wound up coming out in some little indie label with no fanfare. You know, the fine thing is who kind of stole their thunder. If you think about it, in some ways, I'm, I'm not talking as much of a sense of humor, but the darkness kind of took yeah. that. You yeah, know what I mean that they took that big rock and kind of like making fun of heavy rock and. Uh, they did a pretty good job at it, but yeah. I think that's who kind of who stole it, and 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 that was a major label band, you know, obviously. The only one of those Nordic bands that really made an impact in the states was the Hives. Yeah, the Hives, totally. Hives were kind of uh, you know the little brother band in the same way that Nirvana was the little brother band to the, the Seattle scene. So, in you know, whereas in '92, you know, you get Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and Screaming Trees and all of these other bands that, that jump on. With right. the hives, you don't get that when it should have been soundtrack of our lives and flaming sideburns and the ultra foes and all these great bands that nobody heard, right? Or New Bomb Turks, um, yeah. You know that they, they basically took a, a lot of stuff that New Bomb Turks were doing and they just cleaned it up and made it more designed as good well, Swedens do. The whole thing was there's an underground scene in U.S., Australia, and then the Nordic countries that all were interrelated. They were all playing the same kind of music. They were all played with each other. You know, you get the Onyas and the Powder Monkeys and all these bands from totally. from Australia that were part of that scene, and they did nothing in the States either. Right. Yep. Sean, did you give us your choice for uh, a band that you were happy was influential? Uh, you know, no. Um, well, then give it. I, yeah, I, I can't even really think of one, to be honest. I mean, I guess Hum would be the one, but we've already talked about that. Um, the one that I was hoping, maybe, maybe this kind of answers your question, is... Uh, I really loved soul coughing. I thought I thought maybe there was a an out outlet for more of uh, you know kind of what they were doing, which was really smart jazz, jazz influenced hip hop, 
Um, and then, you know, Kate came out and ruined the whole thing for all of us, um, <laughs> in, in my opinion. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's, the, you know, the, the closest one I can think of what we're talking about is like, I really like soul coughing. Um, I think a lot of people dug them, um, but nobody could quite pull off what they were doing. I think Mike Doherty as a solo artist probably influenced more singer songwriters to yeah. take sort of a, a beat approach to their vocals than, you know, I mean, we wouldn't have Jason Mraz if it wasn't for M. Do. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Solo career. Wow. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, oh, this is a good discussion. We just hit the hour mark, and that's where I like to keep these roundtables at the hour mark so I don't have to do uh, a lot of editing. Well, you can edit um, out my whole tangent about the left bank. but yeah. That's okay. That's all right. We got, we got back to it. We, we circled the wagons on that, so that's all right. Um, I want to thank Mr. Eric J. Peterson making – his debut on the show. Thank you. Um, it was a lot of fun. And then also Sean, Michael Foster. We will be looking for the documentary in movie theaters uh, this fall. And now I'm just, when would that, when, when do you guys do, do you have um, say like interviews lined up or anything like that? Or are you just working on funding and that sort of thing now? Uh, we're working on funding and interviews as we speak. Um, awesome. Yeah, it's going well. I want to remind all of our listeners, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And if you would like to suggest an album for an upcoming episode, please hit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. For the missing J, for Eric and for Sean, I'm Tim. We're out. Next week will be an album review, I think. I'm not sure. I have to check the calendar on that. But we'll be back with that or something else next week on the next episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Oh,